This is lecture number seven on Kings by Dr. Robert Benoit of Biblical Theological Seminary. Lecture number seven. We're still under capital F. We've looked at peace with a flaw, and that's 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 10 to verse 25. And then we're at the turning point, which is chapter 9, verse 26 to chapter 10, verse 25. Let's go on to number three under F, which I will call back to Egypt. All right, chapter 10, verses 26 to 29 is our next section. We read there, quote, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses, which he kept in chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. He made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kui. The royal merchants purchased them from Kui. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. End quote. Now it seems that what's going on here is that Solomon is a middleman in the trade of chariots and horses. He bought the horses at 150 shekels a horse, but I think there's more going on here than just a business arrangement. What Solomon's actually doing is profiting from what today you might call the international sale of weapons and armaments. These were the military armaments. The chariots of that time were the tanks of today. They were military implements. Solomon was supposed to be a king of peace, but he's involved in this training of chariots and horses. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, it says that the king is not to acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. That's verse 16 of Deuteronomy 17, where it says, A king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. End quote. Solomon not only is involved in this trade of horses, but you'll notice in verse 26, he accumulated horses and chariots for himself. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. I think you can understand his reasoning. The neighboring nations around Israel had significant numbers of chariots and horses, and Solomon apparently wanted to have horses equivalent to what the neighboring nations had. But I think that you have to put that into biblical perspective, not just political perspective. If you go back to the time of Exodus, you'll remember the Egyptians pursued Israel with chariots and horses. Israelites didn't have any, so they were fearful, of course. But we know what happened. The Egyptian army was destroyed in spite of the fact that the Israelites were helpless from a strictly military standpoint. The Lord intervened. We discussed earlier that during the conquest, Israel came against armies that had great numbers of chariots and horses when Israel had none. If you look at Joshua 11, you read in verse 4 of this coalition of kings headed by Jabin, king of Hatzor, who came out against Joshua with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous, we read, as the sand on the seashore. But again, the Lord gave those kings into the hands of Israel, even though Israel didn't have any chariots and horses at that time either. If you read down later in the chapter what the Israelites carried off for themselves, that's verse 14, 
You read, it's all the plunder and livestock of these cities and all the people they could put to the sword until they completely destroyed them. I think I mentioned to you before, in the context of this chapter, the Lord on that occasion gave instruction to Joshua. Verse 6, Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand them over to Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and to burn their chariots. So it's a direct command. The Lord did not want the Israelites at that point to take these chariots and these horses and to integrate them into their own military forces. Now, by human standards, I think you might say that's foolish, but that's what the Lord commanded. It seems to me that behind that is the concern that Israel trusts in the Lord rather than in a military force and in their own strength and in their own might. If Israel builds an army equal to the armies of all the peoples around them, inevitably there's going to be a shift, and they'll come to put their trust for their security in military might rather than in the Lord. And I think the point is the Lord didn't want them to do that. He wanted the people to trust exclusively in him. So Israel wasn't to build a military establishment in comparison with the peoples around them, They were to remain weak, precisely so that they could put their trust in the Lord. Again, I think you have that idea or that principle of sorts that runs through all of Scripture. You find it there in this Old Testament context. But Paul spoke to the same principle in his second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 10. He says, When I am weak, then I am strong. And I think the point is, when we have nothing in which we can fall back on and put our trust in other than the Lord, that's at the exact point that God's power becomes evident. And when we are in that kind of situation that we live depending on God's love and grace rather than on our own resources, our own whatever, but as we look to our own resources and put our dependence in them, then God's power becomes hidden and becomes unimportant to us. So that principle takes on a lot of forms, a lot of variations. You find in Scripture that God normally chooses to use what is helpless and weak, and so doing to confound that which is strong and mighty. But to get back to the context here, Israel was to be different from the other nations. She wasn't to build a military force. She was to remain in a relationship of complete trust in the Lord for her security, And the Lord guaranteed that security as long as the Israelites were obedient and faithful to his commandments. It seems that Israel took that command to heart for a long time. If you look in Judges chapter 4, you have another reference to chariots. In Judges chapter 4 verse 3, Sisera, the Canaanite, came against Israel. And then you read here, he had 900 iron chariots and cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried out to the Lord for help. Israel had to go against Sisera, who had these 900 iron chariots with only foot soldiers. Yet the Lord says in verse 7, I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give them into your hands. If you read through the narrative, that is exactly what happens. And you read in verses 14 and following, Quote, Deborah said to Barak, who is the commander, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor, followed by ten thousand men. 
At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Haroshet Hagoim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. End quote. If you go a bit further, when the kingship is established, there is no record that Saul had any chariots. David was confronted with horses and chariots. You read in Second Samuel chapter 8, verse 3 and 4, that David fought Hadad-Ezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, when he went to restore his control along the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, 700 charioteers, 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. So David also didn't have any comparable counterforce, but he trusted in the Lord, and the Lord gave him victory. Then, for the most part, he destroyed all those chariots and horses that were against him, but he did save a hundred of them. Psalm 20 says something to us about the way in which David viewed these things. In Psalm 20, the people address the king and sort of add their prayers to the king's prayer for victory. And you read in verse 7, where the king is speaking, which undoubtedly is David, and he says, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees in full, but they rise up and stand firm. So David hamstrung all but a few of those horses, and presumably he destroyed the chariots, just as Joshua had. So it wouldn't seem that David came into conflict with the Deuteronomic law of the king concerning multiplying horses. His force was nothing comparable to what the surrounding nations had, but things are changed here. Solomon has 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. It's really comparable to surrounding nations from what we know of armies at that time. So I think for Solomon, this principle is no longer valid, that when I am weak, then I am strong. He's acting on a different principle, and the principle is, if I have a big enough military force, then I'm strong. So I think Solomon takes on one of the characteristics of a worldly king. Again, that's behavior that's the opposite of what a true covenantal king should have. Solomon reflects a pattern here that continues with all the kings that, for the most part, follow him. So if you look at Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah says in verse 7 and following, quote, Their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the works of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So man will be brought low and mankind humbled. Do not forgive them. Quote. And there is again, it's interesting to see what Isaiah mentions there. Silver and gold, horses and chariots and idols. These are the very things, again, that are reflected in the law of the king back in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And they were things that Israel was supposed to turn away from. But Solomon sought to increase wealth, establish a strong military force, and eventually, he too turned to idols. Okay, let's go on to G, which is conclusions, and that's chapter 11. I have two subpoints that are on your sheet there. One is Solomon's defection from God, verses 1 to 13. Seeing how Solomon violated two of the prohibitions in the law of the king in Deuteronomy 17, to wit, multiplying horses and multiplying wealth, 
And when you get to chapter 11, it's quite clear he violated the third one as well, not to multiply wives. So you read, Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. These were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their own gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of noble birth, 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. That's a large harem, to put it mildly. But again, what you see is his kingship is conforming to the pattern and practices of other ancient Near Eastern courts. It seems that for the most part, these women were foreign women, probably many of them being brought into Solomon's harem in connection with political alliances. But it seems there were also Canaanites because it says they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry. That was the Canaanites, if you go back to the Pentateuch. He violated that. And in the second part of verse 2, it says, Solomon held fast to them in love. So it seems that there's more than just a political or economic arrangement here. It's striking how many times in verses 2 to 4 the term heart is used. It's five times. The Lord says, They will surely turn your hearts after their gods. In verse 3, He had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other guards, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. That expression at the end of verse 3, his wives led him astray, literally in the Hebrew is, his wives turned his heart away. It doesn't come out in the NIV translation. The New King James says, turned his heart away. But you see, heart is used five times here in these few verses. Today, we might use the term mind for heart, but in the biblical context, heart is the center or core of our being. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. In other words, what is decided in the heart works itself out in life. When a person's heart is right, the life will reflect that. But when something turns the heart astray, that's when the going is going to be reflected in the life. And I think that's what's happened to Solomon. The failure began with the heart. In other words, these wives began to influence his thinking and his inner person. Under their influence, he began to follow their heathen deities and to build altars to them as well. As you go further, you read verse 5. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as his father David had done. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. So you see, Solomon begins to build these altars for heathen deities. You don't read explicitly that Solomon himself brought sacrifices on those altars, but what he did, I think, was serious enough. He gave heathen worship a legitimate place in the vicinity of the temple east of Jerusalem, and that's a direct violation of the covenantal commandments that said that all heathen altars in the land should be destroyed. Instead of destroying them, he provides for their construction. 
At that point, you see, there's been a radical change in Solomon's life from his earlier days. Verse 9 says, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. His heart had turned away from the Lord God of Israel. And then verse 4 says, His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. It's interesting that the Hebrew term there, his heart was not fully devoted, for those of you who have had some Hebrew, it's shalem. That's the same root as shalom, and it's the same root as Solomon's name, shlomo, in Hebrew. The basic root word, then, is shalem. Well, I don't know if it's deliberate, but I think the point is the root means to be complete, sound, or wholesome, harmonious. It has the idea of absence of strife. Certainly, early on in Solomon's kingdom, his kingdom reflected peace in the sense of absence of strife, wholeness, soundness, completeness. So you might say Solomon's name, which is related to that root word, shalem, represents his mission, or his task, to bring those conditions about of wholeness and absence of strife to the nation. He was to rule in a way that would create wholesome conditions, a kingdom of peace, but now his heart is no longer wholesome itself, shalem, as it were. It's not fully devoted to the Lord, so harmony and peace in his heart have disappeared. And I think that there, when that division enters his heart, it works itself out and brings division and discord in the kingdom as a whole as well. Again, that's not something that happens overnight. It didn't happen suddenly. It was a process. One thing led to another. The Lord had appeared to Solomon. We can look at the passage in chapter 9 later and warn him. Notice in chapter 9, verse 4. If you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, I will establish your throne forever, as I promised David. But if you turn astray, then I'll cut Israel off from the land, and so forth. He'd been warned about that, but it fell on deaf ears, apparently. So that when you go back to chapter 11 and look at verse 11, we read, The Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you, and give it to one of your subordinates. The Lord said, You have not kept my covenant and my decrees. It's quite explicit. Solomon fell short of being a true covenantal king. You see that after he married these many women, his heart was led astray, and then he provided for worship of heathen deities. That brings us to number two in the outline under conclusion, and that's Solomon's adversaries, which we read about in verses 14 to 25. Now, chapter 11 again. In this section, you get a signal given of the Lord's displeasure with Solomon, and that signal is in the activities of these adversaries. The first one is Hadad the Enamite. In verse 14, we read, Then the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary, Hadad the Edomite, from the royal line of Edom. We read that this man, that during the time of David, had fled from Edom, and had taken refuge in Egypt, and married, in fact, into the family of the Egyptian pharaoh. At this point, he has returned from Egypt to Edom, and he wants revenge on Israel, because David had subdued the Edomites. That was one adversary, then, that the Lord raised up against Solomon, as a signal of his displeasure against Solomon. 
The second one is Rezon, son of Eliada, which you read about in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 23. And God raised up against Solomon another adversary, Rezon, son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah. And he took control of Damascus, and you read that in verse 25, that Rezin was Israel's adversary as long as Solomon lived. Now, Damascus, of course, to the north, is present-day Damascus of Syria, Edom sort of to the southeast. So on two fronts, you might say, Solomon had adversaries, to the northeast and to the southeast, Damascus, where Rezin was, and later on, Hadad, where Edom was. It remains that today, by the way, Damascus and Israel are still at odds. Now, I think the rise of those two opponents in Solomon's time indicates that all is not well in Israel. The principle is that when Solomon makes room for idols, then the Lord makes room, you might say, for Israel's enemies to begin to put pressure on Israel. He uses them, as it were, against his own people. You find that consistently throughout Israel's history, where the Lord will use a heathen nation to bring judgment on his own people. Later, he used the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Okay, I think I'll stop at that point. That brings us to the end of Solomon's kingdom. I've spent a fair amount of time on Solomon because I think Solomon's kingdom really sets the stage for all the followers in the book of Kings. You see from Solomon that even though God has given his promise to David of an eternal dynasty, and there were great expectations for Solomon, that Solomon was unable to live up to that ideal of that covenantal king, and that there are flaws in his kingdom. Those things will become more pronounced and more serious, and it's almost inevitable, you could say, that the covenant judgments of the book of Deuteronomy are going to be realized. Then, as that trend sets in, It's in that context that the messianic ideal of the true covenantal king arises, particularly among the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, and the other prophets as well. They cause Israel not to look at these human, earthly rulers so much, but to look ultimately to the time in which God himself will come and sit on the throne of David as the son of David and establish that kingdom. Okay, let's stop. Next time we'll go on to Roman numeral 2. And I hope we can get down to the dynasty of Omri and Ahab next week, for they are very important, but we'll see how it goes. That's the end of lecture number seven on Kings by Dr. Robert Benoit of Biblical Theological Seminary.